Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Yeah, what's up? It's your boy, Joel Ortiz, and I want everybody to make sure that they subscribe and download the podcast, Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Einenko. Yo, Tim, I hope all is well. You my guy. I know these interviews are not interviews. They're actually conversations, and I appreciate them all. Yeah. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ice-T. I want you to do something for me. Make sure you download and subscribe Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews. With Tim I and Cal. It is old fucking official. Alright? Stop playing. Download and subscribe. Library rap. The hip hop interviews with Tim I and Cal. It's cold. Yes, sir, yes, sir. It's your boy Farrell March in the building. I need y'all to make sure you subscribe and download to the podcast Library Rap. Hip hop interviews with your boy Tim Einenkel. You already know. Face to the bricks. What? I fantasize about this back on the farm, no. Mercy, mercy me, my G, we got so far to go. Overthinking, breaking it down to the last particle. We hold peace, spilling our grievances through the microphone. Def C, welcome to Library Rap, the hip hop interviews with Tim Einenkel. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm a fan of the show, so uh, I appreciate you guys being uh, being willing to talk. Thank you, and I'm a fan of your work, so I appreciate that you're able to take the time this early morning to do so. Um, so you're on your spring, so you're on your spring break. You're a teacher, and you're you're obviously also a hip hop artist. How? And I've always there's always something about being able to take the art that you love and 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 and, and kind of bring it to the kids, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember when years ago, when I got out of college, I um, I was a assistant director at an after school program in the Bronx and we did a whole lyric like lyrical breakdown with uh you know just taking the lyrics of a of a of a of a well, for this example we took the lyrics of where I'm from by Jay Z and um mm. at that time we took the lyrics from Big Pimping uh by Jay Z mm. and kinda like broke it down and said like what what's more appealing to you and the kids when they saw it they actually they gravitated more from where I'm from than versus Big Pimping. Yeah. Uh, even though Big Pimping arguably is a bigger hit, right? Yeah. Uh, so I always appreciate that kind of being able to take those aspects of hip hop and bring them to the community. So for you, as a this is a very long winded way of asking you, um, how has your teaching impacted your art, but also how has your art impacted your teaching? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I mean, first of all, I just want to say where I'm from is if you ever need to teach showing versus telling in music like the things that Hove is telling you in that song or the things that Hove is showing you is telling you so much. And right. it's one of the 
strengths of his writing. So that was one that I definitely taught in workshops. Um, so when you said that, I was like, oh, perfect. <laughs> uh, I mean, my art has influenced my teaching in that I know how to read the vibe of a room. Mm. And I also know how to think on my feet. So, you know, if that's years of off the head freestyles and ciphers, right. give you that ability. I also, in terms of how my teaching has impacted my art, have come to realize a lot about the world around me. And in particular that a lot of times in teaching, because public education in the United States is rooted in whiteness and mm. white supremacy and white privilege, there's an assumption that when you are teaching black and brown students, that their experience is monolithic. Right. Because that's how you're that's how you're taught to see it. If not explicitly in graduate school, which, you know, I was not explicitly taught that then by erasure in graduate school, where you're essentially just kind of taught to teach white kids and specifically white privileged kids. And there's very little discussion of cultural competency, of the difference between being culturally competent and colorblind, which the former is what you're going for. Or the latter is pretty much a lie you tell yourself in order to get through your 40 hours of teaching a week. And what it's, what it's taught me is that, you know, you have all of these young people, a generation of young people who have never been more aware of the world around them or more mobilized by the world around them who also have never been more distracted um, by design because the reward centers of these kids' brains are super, um, are always, somebody is, is constantly competing in order to make money off the reward centers of these kids' brains. So, um, you know, you learn a lot about like looking at when people you are able to intuit situations that require nuance versus situations that don't. And then it's a lot easier for you to break that down in the music too. You just get such a a top to bottom understanding of the way that public institutions work in the United States and who they're set up for uh, and who they fail and a lot of the humanity that you see um, in front of you tends to contradict the message that we get about that humanity when it comes to being teachers. So, you know, like as an example, a song I wrote like Compassion on the Trapdoor album, Mm -hmm. with Messiah Music came from the frustration of being in a school district that for a year I'm hearing we want to do right by the kids. The community that the school district served um, was hit incredibly hard by COVID and they held out longer than most other school districts in the state. But the last three weeks, 
they caved to the board of education and sent the kids back hybrid. And then, and then the next school year, when it started, they'd done absolutely no work to reacclimate the kids or the faculty to teaching. It was, it was just, it, it was, um, it was disappointing. That was the school district I worked for before the school that I work at now. And, um, so seeing things like that, being able to articulate what frustrates me about this country and why comes from being a teacher. And a lot of that ends up in the music too. What, I mean, it's interesting, you know, the having to acclimate all these kids and and you're right, even, even all the teachers, in fact, staff back from being remote to actually socializing with each other. Right. Um, and a, in a, you know, healthier way, uh, has been, you know, it's, 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 it's weak. It's, it hasn't been well done either. And, you know, our kids school as well. And, um, quite frustrating. And, and, and you see like, if you're able to, or if you're in a position of, you know, to advocate for your child, then that's great. But a lot of, a lot of parents, a lot of our caregivers aren't, um, for you, what has been, I mean, I guess as a, as someone who an educator is obviously self-aware of what's happening with the school children and is in touch with understanding, like they're acting out maybe because they've been isolated for two years, you know, uh, not acting out for anybody. What has been the biggest challenge for you getting the kids back, um, to, you know, focusing in the classroom, but also for you getting your, your, your fellow teachers to try to focus more or, or, or be, uh, more open to what the children are going through? Um, I think I'll start with the kids. It really is just kind of like getting them used to being in school again. And, uh, you know, all of the expectations and boundaries that come with that. And in addition to that, remembering that from a cognitive standpoint, we're dealing with kids who, so I teach freshmen. So the last time that they had a full school year in school was when they were in the sixth grade. And halfway through that year, they were sent home. So, um, you know, just in, in really thinking about, um, in really thinking about that, I think, trying to help the kids understand that like, you know, look, there are certain spaces and times for certain behaviors, but you know, if you're in school, you're there for a reason. So you got to make the most out of the time that you have there. And a lot of the drama and the nonsense that people try to catch you up in, uh, that's not, that's not something that you need to deal with in school. And really it's not something you need to deal with outside of school as well, but I can't control what you do when you're out of the classroom or even out of the building, you know? So um, I think getting kids to under to, to basically be more long-term and big picture in terms of their thinking. Um, and then as far as my fellow teachers and I, I, a lot of it has to do with just prioritizing the kids' social emotional wellness because they've been home for so long because a lot of them, are from communities that were the hardest hit by COVID and have low vaccination rates, were the targets of a lot of misinformation campaigns. And um, so, you know, these kids have been through a lot in their year and a half, two years at home. 
but the way that a lot of the boards of education in various states around the country have treated it is like one long snow day. Yeah. So yeah. there there hasn't been an opportunity to reacclimate the kids. So we kind of got to do that in real time as they're sitting in our classrooms. And that could be frustrating sometimes. And I think there are some teachers who are not really patient enough for that. But most teachers, I would say, at least in the school where I am, are very understanding. And the school itself is really trying to shift to prioritizing social emotional learning. Um, because the biggest challenge is trying to see it as like, we got to get these kids readjusted to life in school, as opposed to we got to cram two and a half years of learning into their heads in the span of two semesters, because that's right. not realistic anyway. Right. And, and, and then, and you're right. And, and there's this, uh, I think, and then uh, obviously from, uh, you guys are probably hearing from parents as well, that they want their child to, you have, we have parents that still want their child to like catch up as much as possible in their education and not realizing that there's a, uh, there's this social emotional component that needs to come first before anything. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Which has been, you know, as a parent has been also an adjustment to us where we're like, well, how much, you know, like when do we, I guess the question is like, when do you start? When is the, I don't know. When does the education begin? <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, you know, uh, versus like, you know, how, how, or how do we do it? side by side with adjusting them social emotionally and you know yeah. try and make sure they don't fall behind in the um especially in a public school setting which obviously has all its other faults right and i mean not faults mm-hmm. but also all, all other problems that it goes with i know uh, i so sorry to go about that uh no, uh, just more fast good. um i i you know i want to uh, adjust a little bit to the art your art um and, and i and the the ep uh we dress the city with our names uh I think is one one of my favorite names for an EP, uh, <laughs> but because uh, it says a lot, uh, obviously, uh, and I, I totally understand where, what it means. Um, and the first track, uh, "Just a Kid Growing Up," the hook ends with "My parents raised me fearful. Writing makes me fearless," which yeah. I think is just like a, that's a powerful line uh, that you are able to repeat. Can you talk about um, this line, but also kind of talk about? What doors mentally, artistically, and et cetera, did um, did writing give give you? Mm, or open for um, you? I mean, it it really is just kind of like I feel like being a white kid from the suburbs who was into rap and wanted to become a rapper. That bar exemplifies the parental response. <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, but ultimately, I think a lot of you know all of those fears are pretty much unfounded. And as a writer, as somebody who was into writing and was traveling all over the city for open mics and workshops and to hang out with friends of mine who I met through hip hop in Chicago, writing really dispelled a lot of those notions. And so then it made me in a way fearless in that context, it also made me fearless in terms of being a very insecure kid from a young age and then realizing here is this thing that I can do. And the more I worked on it, the better I've gotten at it, which was not true of school. It was not true of you know, my, my social skills or social interactions with my peers. It was really 
um, one of the few things that I knew I was good at and I could only get better at by working on it. And so um, it, it made things that seemed impossible for me, like standing up in front of a crowd of people and performing or sharing something I'd written or allowing myself to be vulnerable, it made that possible. So that's where that line came from. What, you just mentioned you're, you're a white kid from the suburbs. So what, what, what was the first, I and mean, what drew you to hip hop then? So um, I have two older sisters and they dragged my dad to a crisscross concert. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And they brought home the cassette single for Jump and they played it. And I must have been two or three years old. I got a, I always got, a, I feel like I got a fact check. I always say two years old, but um, I feel right. like the single came out in like 92. Anyway, <laughs> so um, they played it and I just was running around the house. Like I just went crazy for it. And I was in the hip hop ever since then. They would play, I, I saw like old home movies of me like, jamming with them to mind playing tricks on me by ghetto boys because it came on the radio nice. and being like very young when that when that came out and not even realizing that i'd heard it when i was that young because i love that song so much when i encountered it as a teenager and so it, it pretty much was like a love at first listen thing with hip-hop and then you know i just kind of have stayed in love with it ever since uh, you know, you, you talk about writing and, and you think about, you know, um, two different types of art forms like emceeing and, and graph writing, right? Um, what, uh, and obviously are two different forms of expression. What does, um, is what does emceeing allow you to do, uh, express that, uh, graph doesn't? And what does graph allow you to do to express mm -hmm. that emceeing doesn't? So uh, to, again, to be transparent, I know I've said this uh, a couple of times, but I think I, I might need to make it a little bit more clear just because I, I don't want anybody from the graffiti community to come at me. Right, for right. It. But, uh, you know, I've never picked up a can of spray paint. I've never really written graffiti. I had like my little BS tag that I wrote in my notebooks uh, with my initials when I was younger. But other than that, I never really, I never got up. I was never in the train yards. I was never um, running around with people doing it. I had friends who did that. Hmm. And they were certainly braver than I was and a lot more courageous. And I think what graffiti inspired me to do as a rapper, um, especially on that EP, was to imagine, just to to know the process of what it looks like when somebody is throwing a piece up and to try to find a way to do that with the cadences and the pockets I picked and the words that I chose. And I just love the juxtaposition of some of the best writers in the city. Some of my homies who, in addition to writing graffiti, were also writing raps who had those crazy transferable skills when it came to imagery and uh, style as well, right? Just like you got to have your own unique style in graffiti writing, you got to have your own unique style in, in rhyming as well. And I think some of my favorite rappers are also were graffiti writers. So people like Quell from Typical Cats, Sketch 185, 
uh, Big Just from Company Flow. These were all people who I really looked up to and who were also very into writing graffiti. So, I mean, really just kind of picking up things from the homies and um, on that particular EP, I was inspired by Style Wars because the group of young artists in that movie reminded me of the group of young poets and rappers I was around when I was a teenager. The title of the EP comes from a line in Style Wars where one of the kids was saying, was comparing writing graffiti to dressing the city uh, with their names and that kind of enthusiasm and informal mentorship all informed the approach that I took to, uh, or all reminded me of the experiences I had coming up in Chicago's hip hop and poetry scene as a young person. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, again, the headline is I've, I've never written graffiti in my life. <laughs> right. Uh, and then the sub headline is, but it did certainly inform how I wrote raps and um, what I valued when it came to hip hop culture. I think the great thing about the um, the EP's name, um, and I and I I'm, I might be missing which track you do this, and I think it might be alive, but it it's a kind of a nice reminder that too, like um, after we're gone, this art will still be there in the city, but also this is kind of what you know this is what makes up cities a lot is that like the 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 graffiti or the street art that uh a lot of people that come in from who are not from the city originally want to like tear down. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, that was, I think, um, I've been to Mexico city and one of my favorite things, well, let me backtrack and explain why that's significant. So Chicago has some of the harshest anti-graffiti laws in the country. Like I, I'm fairly certain. I, I don't know. I'm sure it might've changed. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Um, but I know that when I was growing up, like first offense was a felony. I know that, you know, people who wrote graffiti on trains who have had to pay like $10,000 fines, like just kind of crazy, um, wild, harsh penalties to keep graffiti out of the city. And it wasn't until recently when I started seeing pieces along the highway again, like actual legitimate pieces, not just somebody, you know, committing a, a, an act of like, you know, third grade vandalism, right, right. But, but real art and um, really reminding, it, it reminded me a lot of being in Mexico City and in New York City as well, when I was visiting there, like, 10, 11 years ago of 
you know, see, being able to see all of the beautiful pieces and to really feel like it added to the vibrancy of those cities, you know, and, and it's, it's so weird. Well, I guess it's not weird. I, I, you know, it's just racist that you have all of these different cities in the United States that don't value that kind of art and are looking to just, you know, whitewash it or institutionalize it or use it to shoehorn an entire group of people into certain neighborhoods at the expense of people who have lived in those neighborhoods for decades, you know? Right. Uh, on the track, a dunk contest, you, you know, you go Jordan from the free throw, Kobe on the baseline, Spud Webb vertical, Vince with the hang time, Brent yeah. Barry face on. Uh, can you uh, kind of talk about the concept of this basketball, well, one of bas- the basketball concept for this, for this track, but also, uh, and, and for hip hop artists, who who who's your Jordan? Who's your Carter? Who's your Webb? Oh, who's wow. your Kobe? And who's your Brad Barry? Damn! <laughs> what a question! Um, wow, that's amazing. Uh, <laughs> all right, well, I can definitely answer the first half of that, and then the second <laughs> half is going to take a little bit longer. Um, but I would say, like, in terms of the basketball metaphor and the hook. I mean, I feel like, you know, I had, I don't know whether somebody said it or I came up with this myself, but like, I kind of realized maybe like seven or eight years ago that the BET hip hop award ciphers in the NBA slam dunk contest were pretty much the same thing Mm. where it's, you know, you're showing off, obviously, of course, you know, the NBA slam dunk contest is live. The other one is pre-recorded, So you don't know how many times somebody messes up. Right. Before they're able to hit that, you know, 360 windmill on camera. Um, but, you know, it, it's, you know, when you're in those ciphers, you're out to prove a point. When you're in the dunk contest, you're out to prove a point. And so even if that point isn't necessarily something that's going to put you in the same stratosphere as some of the greats, at the very least, you have an accomplishment that you can bring home and show people like, Hey, I did this. And I think that's what it is for the ciphers as well. There are some people who the only thing that they've really made an impression with was their verse in a BET cipher. And maybe the music that came after that wasn't as good or uh, wasn't as compelling as what they did in those ciphers or maybe in their radio freestyles or whatever, but it's still impactful. And so that was the spirit that was, driving um how it was rhyming in that song in particular um and in terms of man i mean brent brent berry is just kind of like i feel like brent berry and spud webb right and are kind of the outliers in terms of that hook right (laughs) like like you have um and and the brent berry one was just you know like i'm i'm a white dude so i remember he dunked from the free throw line and um as a white guy I didn't want I didn't want to leave that out when I'm comparing myself to you know four other black ball players um so I mean as far as hip-hop is concerned I would say who Mike I would probably say Jay-Z is Mike um I would say in terms of Kobe 
probably be Wayne. I'm going just for the mainstream answers. I don't I don't know that like my underground answers <laughs> would necessarily would necessarily work as well. Um, but I think if you're looking at like accomplishment meets skill, I think you gotta put Jay-Z as Mike. Um I think Wayne Wayne is Kobe, but really Wayne in his prime. Um both of his primes, actually, because I would argue that the way he's rapping right now is probably when he's at his best, better than what he was doing in the mixtape days. Um, and then as far as Vince is concerned, man, I, I, you know what? I feel like, huh, guys like uh, Aesop Rock, Got, like I feel like there's a whole category of Vince Carter's, Billy Woods, Ka, um, people like Doom, rest in peace, or Sean Price, rest in peace. People who are able to have really extensive careers that toward the beginning might have been more explosive than they were toward the end, but they remain dependable and skilled throughout their entire run. So, um, yeah, I think there's a a huge Vince Carter category in hip hop now that a lot of people, myself included, <laughs> are occupying. And um, it's really dope to see that. And then Brett Berry, uh, I would say Machine Gun Kelly, but I don't want to insult Brett Berry like that. Um, Spud Webb, and yeah, I feel like Brent Berry and, and Spud Webb would probably be the people I would pick. It probably would not be a nice comparison just because Spud Webb really um, outside of that dunk contest had like a solid career, but it wasn't anything spectacular. And uh, you could probably say the same thing for Brent Berry. Brent Berry, I felt like was like prototype JJ Reddick, you know, like you just, you have, uh, you have somebody who can slash, who can spot up from three. Um, but there's somebody who's going to be the seventh or eighth man off the bench and still reliable. It's public enemy, see truth in this music, it weighs a ton. Body bag over the mic and caution tape on the drums. Jordan from the free throw, Kobe on the baseline. Spud Webb vertical, Vince with the hang time. Brent Berry face on, warm-ups for the stage fright. Coming for the crown in the ring, make him pay twice. Uh, another uh, kind of sports metaphor you do is uh, Bobby Bonilla Day, um, yeah. which is great for me because I'm, I'm a Yankee fan, so I like to talk trash to my best friend friends with about this. Uh, so okay, uh, but you know, obviously the 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 song itself is more than it's 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 you know it's not you 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 knocking or you know dragging on um, on what you know Bobby Bonilla as like the contract the Mets gave him. It's it's more to that. Um, and there's, you know, lyrics that you spit are um, throw me praise and helps just a dose or two even be called underrated counts when it's overdue, uh, which is a line I really like. Can you kind of break down that lyric and, and kind of what it means to you? Uh, I mean, so for a long time, I would say probably between like 2010 and 2018. It always kind of felt like no matter how good I rap, no matter how well I rap, no matter how good the music I made was, I was always hitting a very low ceiling. And, uh, you know, in that eight year span, 
I'd come to the conclusion that, and, and it was a healthy conclusion to come to, that I probably would not be making a living off of music. And that, you know, it would be a, a passion, it would be a passion project for me, but it wouldn't be able to pay my bills and keep the lights on. And so as a result of that, you know, the praise or people showing love kind of complements that and offsets the disappointment that comes with it. Because I think a lot of us who are creative and have that drive to create would love it if creativity was the only thing we had to worry about 24-7 and we were still able to take care of ourselves and our families with the fruits of that labor. But if we can't do that, at the very least, people showing me love, like, you know, it's a nice consolation prize. It's not, it's not something that I, I do, uh, I make music for specifically. I think it was when I was younger. It's not really what I'm doing now, but it's something where, you know, you just appreciate people who are going to let you know that you're not just screaming into the void. The, the, the bigger picture, I think, of, 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 the, of the track is it comes towards the end um, when you spit uh, centuries at the same con and we keep it up. The least you owe who you've wronged is honestly, is honesty. We won't offer as much an apology. Happy Bobby Winnie a day. Uh, obviously, you know, not, not definitely not a comment about the Mets contract to Bobby Bonilla. Uh So can you kind of you know talk about these lyrics, but also like, what is the, I guess, why use, why use Bobby Winnie a day as the, the title for the track, but you're talking about more than just Bobby Bonilla. Mm. Well, I mean, I wrote Bobby Bonilla day on Bobby Bonilla Day, because I think it was like Band Camp Friday. So I wanted to just throw a joint out with Nick Arcade that um, I was able to mix real quick and then post online. Um, but I think Bobby Bonilla subverted the sports contract and wound up, you know, making way more money than somebody with his career would have made in other circumstances. And I think that that was what drove me to be subversive in terms of the content of the song, where it's like, you know, even if, even if I've been out of the game for a long time, you're still going to pay me what you owe me as far as respect or money. And then I thought to myself, like, in, in the grand scheme of things, it would be pretty selfish if that were the only topic I discussed. And so as I wrote that second verse, what kind of came out organically without it happening very intentionally was this idea of like, the United States has, I don't think ever issued a formal apology for slavery. I could be wrong about that. Um, but, you know, we've, I, I'm looking at the world around us and the idea that critical race theory, which is something that kids aren't taught until law school is being used as a catch-all phrase for teaching kids about race and how uh, we as a country are trying our best to eliminate that. Um, And the fact that it's X amount of years later, we're not even honest about it or the long lasting impacts it's had or the 
the detrimental impacts it's had on specific communities in this country. Um, we just kind of lie about that and act like everybody everybody starts off with the same opportunities and resources in the United States when that's not the case. Because those kinds of socioeconomic gaps exist across tax brackets for the reason that, you know, the the impact of racist policies have allowed for those gaps to only widen over the years. So um, I think for me, it's, it's, it's about as a white man and as a white rapper acknowledging like, you know what, for as much as I complain about people not showing me enough love or not buying me music enough, like there are other conversations that are a lot more overdue that we need to be having. And if those conversations come with um, financial ramifications or emotional ramifications, so be it. But they're conversations that need to be had. It's also the denial that, you know, like that, that racism has been solved, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or, I'm, it's, it's, or it's not, or that it just never existed in the first place. But I was like, I always you think know? my, my favorite is the people who, when, when an athlete talks about blatant racism in you know, the NFL or, or whatever, you know, and someone writes, that's not true. Never happened. Oh, by the way, I marched with Martin Luther King. You're like, that eh, probably not. But you know, you're like it's just like as if you know, it's been solved. Don't worry about it. But and you're like, no, it still yeah. exists. I mean, there are so and there are so many people too who try to use sports as like the sports is the great equalizer. No, it's not. No. Because as all. soon as people as soon as people leave the locker room, sometimes as soon as people leave the court, sometimes while people are on the court or on the field, they're still subject to that same bullshit. Right. So I don't, I don't, you know, people who say stick to sports, what they're really saying is stop making me uncomfortable having right, right. a discussion that I'm not capable of being a part of right, or, right. or a conversation that might implicate me in behavior that would make me feel bad. The first track I heard from you was uh, Ragnarok um, okay. featuring uh, Boathouse and, and Kip Stone, who I, I've interviewed for the show and an incredible artist as well. Uh you know, it's your. I guess your. You know, this is this comes out in. I you know, some people would call it. We call it the endemic, but you know, still, I don't know how many people are actually able to go in the studio together or you know meet up with each other. So, how did this right. kind of? How did this collaboration come together? And um, you know, what what did you first hear from? I guess what what's the track that you first hear heard by Boathouse, and what's that track that you first heard by Kip Stone that wanted you to have them, you know, work with you? Um, I mean, both. I've known him for over 10 years. And the first time I heard a beat of his was he produced for, uh, I think his artist name is Groupthink now, but he was Sun. And at the time he was Danny Leonard, Lord of the Fly. And he had a joint, excuse me, he had a couple joints on his first mixtape, which is, uh, I don't know if it's still out. I know he dropped it through Mishka. Um, and I know Mishka's blog doesn't exist anymore. But they, um, I remember listening to it and some of the beats on there were just super fire. And so that's how I, I was able to link with Boat. Um, we had some mutual friends as well. He was going to Columbia College. I was at the University of Wisconsin. Mutual friends from music were 
in Madison with me. So I was able to meet him through them. And I've just kind of been a fan of his work ever since then. And I've had a whole lot of beats from him over the years that uh, I didn't wind up using that I had to give back to him. And we finally just around, I think last summer, like late last summer, um, we finally sat down and built something in the studio together. And uh, for the most part, there are a few songs that I recorded while I was quarantining with COVID. Um, and uh, yeah, just wrote and recorded a whole bunch of stuff that we were very proud of. So that's how my connection with Boathouse came to be. And then Kip, I've, I've known Kip has been like a very consistently dope rapper for a long time. When I got the verse back for Ragnarok, because we that was something that I think, I don't know where Kip is in the country. I know where he's from. I don't know if he's still there. But he had such an ill verse that I was like, really trying to argue with Alex and Aiden like let me get another verse on that like I can't just let <laughs> I can't just let my man come in there and kick over the buildings like come on now um and then I didn't wind up doing it and I just put my pride to the side and realized what was best for the song was probably just letting that verse rock because he went crazy on that he went super crazy do you have a do you have a I, obviously this could change but do you have a lyric that kind of like stands out in that song that that you wrote that kind of you're you're really proud of oh yeah um for everyone who hop bail and turn hail bop riding comments to heaven for 575 that that those two bars in particular because i was watching that heaven's gate documentary on hbo max and i and i'd heard the hail bop comment and i I'd, I'd heard of it before but it was the first time i'd heard of it in years and i immediately you hear uh name like hail bop and you start thinking of rhymes and what i did instead was i was like what if i switch the consonants and it would turn into hot bell so um i was proud of that for very nerdy writer reasons <laughs> nice but that's the those two lines and then the riding comments to heaven for 575 like the idea of you know it costs it it, it might cost 575 to escape something or to, to buy something that's going to help you escape something. And then also like the fact that everybody in that cult had $5 and 75 cents on them when they went. And I forget what the symbolism was supposed to represent, but I just thought it was an interesting follow-up to that line where it would sound cool if, even if people did not understand the reference, um, but people who did understand the reference would rock with it. So you're 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 an educator and you're an MC. What is what's next on your 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 plate? Uh, what, what what do you what's what are the next steps at, um, in terms of music, but also in terms of education? I mean, I would love to have the opportunity to. There's this uh, in terms of education. I think I would love to teach creative writing or spoken word poetry full time. Like I, I currently teach college and college careers and skills. So post-secondary pathways, executive functioning, kind of serving as halfway teacher counselor. And I love doing that work because I get to know the students, but I, I don't think it's as fulfilling as being able to inspire creativity in the classroom and to validate kids' abilities when it comes to creating. So yeah, that's probably what's next for me as far as education is just trying to find a way to be able to 
to do that. And then as far as music is concerned, I mean, April 19th for All Debts Public and Private, produced by Boathouse, featuring Arm & Hammer, Kip Stone, Mother Nature, Solar Five, Green Slime. I mean, it's a it's a crazy lineup of guests and um, a really dope album. And I hope that everybody feels the same way when it's out. That's dope. He's uh, Def C. Uh, thank you so much for being on Library Rap, the hip hop interviews with Tim Michael. I greatly appreciate your time. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Tim. And, uh, you know, hopefully one day we can do this again. What's good, y'all? This is Breeze Bruin from the Mighty Juggernauts. And make sure you subscribe and download the podcast. Library Rap, the hip hop interviews with Tim Einan Kell. Hip hop journalism on the highest level. Turn to go to Kronos, shit on me. Hope both tears don't leak, cause we broke and shop on front lines in the widow's peaks. This ain't deja vu, it's another ass whooping. Any crash I may have has a cash cushion. When their ego tripping, it's a bad booking. They aren't better, that's just the center of their glass cooking. I got a habit that I managed to convert into a living, so I practice. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.